0: And all God's people said, amen, thank you, Cindy. Pastor and teacher Charles Swindoll was speaking at a camp in California. And before he spoke the first evening, a man came up to him and said, Dr. Swindoll, I have waited so long for this week. I am going to eat up every word that you say. Well, on Sunday night, the man was sitting on the front row and he started nodding off and he was soon asleep. And Swindoll figured that the long drive to the camp had something to do with it, so he kind of let it go. Well, Tuesday night, the man started nodding off again and was soon asleep. Wednesday night, the man fell asleep for the third straight evening. And at this point, Swindoll was beginning to get upset. He said, you know, he came and told me he was going to eat up every word and he couldn't even stay awake through the first 10 minutes. Well, Thursday night, the same song, fourth verse. And on Friday morning, the lady who was sitting next to this man came up to Pastor Swindoll and thanked him for all he had said and shared the previous nights. And then she said, and by the way, I am sorry about my husband who is sleeping through your messages. He has terminal cancer and he has two weeks to live. And when we talked about what he wanted to do before he died, he told me that he wanted to go hear Chuck Swindoll. And the doctors gave him medicine to ease the pain, but the consequence is that it makes him tired. But I wanted you to know, he, she said, that this has been the best week of his life. Swindall later mentioned that he felt like he could have crawled under a rock because he had made a judgment on this man without really knowing who he was or what he was going through. And sometimes for, for myself and possibly for you, I can make judgments about what God is doing or not doing in my life or in my family, and I can come to conclusions, but the question that I have to ask myself is, am I continuing to seek God, am I continuing to know him to the point where I can have his perspective in understanding what I am seeing? Isn't it true that the more you know a person, the better you know them, the more you understand them? And when you know what they've gone through, when you have conversations and they share and you hear, the greater your connection to that individual is, especially if, they are, especially if they are vulnerable and let you into some of the more challenging and maybe personal moments of their life. So they can do something, but because of your understanding, you have a context by which to understand their actions. And of course, as I mentioned, when it comes to God, the more that we understand Him, the more that we know about Him, the more we trust Him. And I've mentioned numerous times, sometimes we can't trace God's hand, but if we learn to understand His heart, we have the ability to say, God, I don't know what you're up to, but I trust you. And we refrain from making those statements or coming to those conclusions where maybe even in a quiet but yet plain way, We're saying, God, you could do better. You could do differently. Why are you acting in the way that you're acting? Well, this morning, we're beginning a two-part sermon series entitled Ten Things That We Know About God. And for this week and next week, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 as we continue our sermon series on getting through this book. And in this book, in this chapter, in chapter 5, we have three stories of three different people and their personal interactions with Jesus. And from these 42 verses, we're going to talk this morning for next week's sex, four things that are true about God. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 5. This morning we are going to look at verses 1 to 20, where Mark writes these words. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and, and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them, how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The first thing we know about God through this encounter is that he is compassionate. Now let me give you a little bit of history leading up to this point. If you go back to chapter 4, we see that Jesus and his disciples, upon landing on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, had gone through a rough night on that sea. They had left the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, heading to the region where Jesus had an appointment. And at some point on the sea, the winds came, the waves were crashing over the side of the boat, and consequently the boat was filling with water. And we read while all this was happening that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. He might have been under the deck, he might have been on the deck, but the issue was that he was undisturbed by the storm. The disciples, fearing for their life, woke Jesus up and explained to him that in their minds this was a life or death matter. And Jesus says nothing to them. He simply turns, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, peace. He demands peace, and he commands the wind and the waves to be still. And immediately, that is what has happened. And Jesus' first words to the disciples, after calming the winds, after calming the sea, were these. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, obviously, Jesus's expectation for the disciples was greater than their experience. And obviously, the disciples did not have a clear picture of just how powerful Jesus was, because his disciples' response that they were now afraid for a new reason. They were no longer afraid because the sea had calmed down, but they were afraid because, and they said this, who in the world is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They were getting an enlarged picture of the immensity of Jesus' power and the absolute authority that he had over everything on the earth. So now the disciples, they regroup. I can imagine pulling on the the oars, thinking through what had just happened. They continue to the other side to the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And as they get there they are met with another adventure. It says when Jesus stepped out of the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now what do we know about him? We know first of all that he had an unclean spirit. We later read that it was not just one it was legions. He was filled with demons. He lived in the tombs with a decayed and decaying corpses of the dead, he was uncontrollable. The people of the area had tried to restrain him, and every time they bound him with chains and shackled him, he broke loose, breaking the sh- shackles into pieces. Can you imagine him taking the shackles and pounding them against the rock of the tombs until they were broken into unusable pieces? No one could match his strength. Night and day, he ran among the tombs, hollering, crying out, shrieking, cutting himself, inflicting himself with cuts and bruises. And Luke, in his gospel, his rendition of this story, says that this demon-controlled man was naked. He had not worn clothes for a long time, indicating the degree of his condition. And on top of all this, the people living in the area were scared to death of him. He was alone. He was isolated. Do you know that according to the Barna Research Group, that four out of five Christians strongly agree that Satan is not a living being, but rather just a symbol of evil? That a minority of Christians, 35%, indicate that they believe Satan is real, and the remaining surveyed participants are not sure what they believe about Satan. But I want to assure you today that on that shore in the Sea of Galilee, there was 100% agreement that Satan was real. He was not just an idea. He was not just a conjured up thought that is used to explain why there, is, why there is evil in our world. They were convinced that Satan was real and that he was under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark paints an utterly horrible picture of this man's existence. This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding laceration, scabs, infections, and scar tissue living in a delirium of pain. He was running wild, naked, unkempt, and ill. He terrorized people and no one would come near him. If he had any lucid moments, he sensed the hopelessness of his situation. And into his world came Jesus. In fact, this passage seems to indicate that the entire reason that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee was to get to this man. Because after he heals the man, what do the people do? They ask him, leave, get out of here. And Jesus gets in his boat and he returns to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting that in chapter 4, verse 36, we read that Jesus left a crowd of people on the west side to come and meet with one individual on the east side. What a statement of the remarkable personal compassion Of our Savior. So, what is the message for me and for you on your sermon outline? The application is this: because God is compassionate, I can share all my life with Him. He was not taken back; He was not overwhelmed with this demonic man's problems. And in the same way, Jesus cared for this man; He will care for you, and He will care for me. He knows every hurt of our lives, and He will cross the lake to get to you. He knows every discouragement you face, and he will get to you. He knows every shattered dream. He knows every broken relationship. And he knows every financial, physical, or emotional difficulty that you face. And he will get in the boat, and he will go through a storm, and he will come to you. Do not doubt it. The second thing we know about Jesus from this story is that he is all-powerful. In verse 6 it says, and when Jesus saw, and when he saw Jesus from afar, this demon-possessed man, he ran and fell down before him. Now what did this man do to anybody else? He chased them off. Hollering and screaming, he would run after people, scaring them half to death. And no one in their right mind would even go near those tombs because they knew this man would chase him and he was out of control. But to Jesus, the demon-possessed man runs to him and falls down before him in a position submission the demon asked Jesus why he had come and he pleads with him not to torment him he the demons understood that they were helpless before Jesus and they were pleading for mercy before God Jesus had already taken authority and commanded the demons to come out of the man so now it was just a matter of determining where those demonic forces would go and they did not want to go immediately to the burning pit and they said how about those pigs But before they decided it, Jesus said, what is your name? And they could not help but answer the truth. They said, our name is Legion, for there are many of us. And then, of course, they go into the pigs, a herd of 2,000, which gives an idea of how many demons were filled in this man, and those pigs run down the lake and drowned in the water. If there is a message that verses 6 to 13 give us, it's that Jesus is all-powerful. The demons immediately submitted because they knew they were powerful. Lust before the Son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is all powerful? It means that He has ultimate authority and His purposes will not be thwarted. Do you believe that? I trust that you do because it is the truth. When it comes to Jesus, you cannot threaten Him, He will not give in, you cannot manipulate Him, He will not be coerced into anything other than His will. He will give you one option, and that is the option of submiss- submission. And obedience to have authority means to get the final outcome that you want with that in mind let me tell you the story of a 10 year old little boy he was out of control and when he went to the doctor's office for his yearly checkup he literally attacked the clinic grabbing instruments and files and telephones and his passive mother would do little more than shake her head and bewilder that he had her under his control during the physical examination, the doctor noticed the little boy had some severe cavities and he wondered what dentist can I send this boy to Will he will actually get the help he needs. And he remembered an old dentist that might be able to handle this little boy. So he made an appointment. And the little boy went to the dentist and the dentist took him in from his mom into the back room where the chair was and said uh, i need you to get into the chair the little boy said no chance the dentist said i told you to get into the chair and that's what i intend for you to do and the boy said if you make me get in the chair i'll take all my clothes off take them off son the dentist replied well the boy took off his pants and his shirt and his shorts and stood totally naked before the dentist and his assistant now get in the chair And Robert did exactly what he was told and he cooperated throughout the entire procedure. The cavities were filled, his teeth were cleaned, he was ready to go. He got off the chair and he said, I want my clothes back now. And the dentist says, I'm sorry, tell your mother you're going to have, I'm going to keep your clothes for tonight, you can come back and get them in the morning. You can imagine his mother's shock when the door to the waiting room opened and there stood her pink son as naked as the day he was born. The room was filled with patients, and Robert and his mom walked right by them into the hall, down the elevator and home, getting some sneers and some snickers, or stares and snickers. The next day, Robert's mother returned to get her boys' clothes, and she asked to have a word with the dentist. She did not come to protest. She said, you don't know how much I appreciate what happened here yesterday. You see, Robert had been blackmailing me about taking off his clothes for years, Whenever we are in a public place, if I do not buy him what he wants, he threatens to take his clothes off. You were the first person who called his bluff, and the impact on Robert has been incredible. What did the dentist do? He got his end result because he knew how to use his authority. And I want to assure you, friends, that when we submit to God and we come under his authority, he will get the result that he desires in our life. And in life of anyone else that comes to him and says, God, I submit to your authority. I will not push against it." What is the application? Because God is all powerful. There is nothing in my life he cannot help me with and heal. There is nothing in your life. There is nothing in my life that our almighty God can't restore or give us the grace to get through. He will not be bluffed. He will not be dissuaded. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will accomplish in your life what needs to be accomplished as we submit to him the devil has no power before him any destructive habits cannot stand against his will and his ways nothing from your past or your present threatens his ability to handle them, because he is the lord almighty he is your savior your healer and when you ask for his help he will accomplish his will for his glory and for your good there is nothing that can stand in his way he is our god almighty the all-powerful God of the universe, and we can trust him. Number three, he is unoffendable. Now look what happens. Those who had been taking care of the pigs went and told everyone what had happened. And when the people came out and saw pig corpses floating in the lake and the once demon-possessed man sitting his clothes on and in his right mind, they did something unusual. They asked Jesus to leave. You might think that they would have asked a lot of other questions. What happened? How was this man healed? Who are you? Can you help me? Can you help my family? We need to get to know you. We think there would have been questions that would have led to a revival, but instead they asked him to leave. They could not comprehend, they did not have the capacity to understand what had happened, so they gave in to fear. And isn't that something that happens to all of us? Sometimes if we cannot understand something, or cannot control it, we give in to fear. Now, did Jesus chide them or reprimand them? Did he call out the hardness of their hearts? Did he wipe the dirt off his sandals and say, well, then, if you reject me, you're on your own? No, he was not offended. He simply got in the boat, and the disciples prepared to shove off. To offend means to irritate or annoy or cause anger or resentment. Jesus was not offended. Why? Because he had a plan. There was more to come. Jesus, because Jesus knows everything, he is not surprised by anything. Because Jesus knows everything, he is not surprised by anything. He knew what the people would do. He knew they were operating out of their own fear. They wanted him to leave because they were, not, because they were afraid. They weren't rejecting him. They were responding to their own emotions. They did not understand what happened. And they said, this is too much for us to bear. It's too much for us to comprehend. Please leave. And because Jesus loved them and understood them and why they were fearful, he was patient with them. He says, let's just let this sink in. And here is the truth on your outline. Because God cannot be offended, I need not fear his anger. Because God cannot be offended, you and I need not fear his anger. No matter what your mistake, God will not react with anger. The anger of your sin and my sin was resolved on the cross when God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus. God is not insecure. Your sin, your weakness, your problems, whether self-induced or given to you by others, does not threaten threaten God because he is all-powerful and he is all about your good for his glory. So do not fear, because our God is a restorative God. And his love for you is greater than any of our sin or shame, and he understands our motivation. This brings us to number four. The fourth thing this passage tells us about God is that he is purposeful in everything. Let me read again verses 18 to 20. As he was sitting, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with him. He did not. But he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, what Jesus, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It's easy to see what's happening. Jesus healed this man. He saw the man Inside the shell of a body that was being controlled by demons and very naturally this man who Jesus had Touched Jesus had changed this man's life. This man wanted to be with Jesus To him Jesus was a place of security a place of peace a place of acceptance and it makes perfect sense This man would want to jump in the boat and head back across the lake and spend the rest of his life with him But Jesus had another plan He said no you can't come go home see your family tell your friends tell them two things First of all, tell them what I've done for you. This is who you were two hours ago. This is who you are today because of my touch on your life. And number two, tell them that I am a merciful, mercy-filled God. That I am not a harsh, punishing God. I am a merciful God. The word mercy means compassion, kindness, being unusually sensitive and compassionate to someone who does not necessarily deserve mercy or compassion. Tell them that's who I am. That in spite of their sins, I will love them, That in spite of their failures, in spite of their rejections, I will welcome them into my family. Tell the people, give them your story, tell them who I am, so that they will no longer be afraid, but be willing to come and let me care for them. On your outline, the application is this, because he is purposeful, I can have confidence in where he leads me. There is never a time that God will lead you if you're seeking him outside his will for you. Someone said the safest place to be is at the center of God's will for our life. God is purposeful in all he does. He does nothing on a whim. He has a plan and he has chosen to give you and I the opportunity to be a part of his plan. And sometimes that will mean we will not understand. We are going to have to trust him through the physical pain, through the emotional distress, through the financial problems. We will have to trust him when the grief comes and the disappointment hits. So what was the man's response? We read that he took off and he told everyone what Jesus had done. Anyone who would listen and some who didn't want to hear his story still heard, this is what I was, this is what I went through, this is where I am today. I have a new life all because of Jesus. Now what impact did that story have? If you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7 beginning with verse 31 and you go to chapter 8 to verse 9, we see in these verses that the, now remember, the demon-possessed man was telling everyone what Jesus had done for him. He was a front-runner for Jesus. Because in Mark 7 to Mark 8 9, it describes Jesus returning to the area of the Gerasenes, to the same area where he had been asked to leave before. And this man had gone all over this area sharing his story, and what did it say? That the people marveled. So when Jesus came back, sometime later, they were ready to receive him. And the Bible said he was met. By a crowd, a crowd gathered to hear this Jesus, and what the demon put this Jesus that had changed the demon this Jesus that had changed the demon possessed man's life. This man's testimony had set the stage for the crowd that welcomed him. Some of the same people who had asked him to leave were now there with ears open, wanting to hear what Jesus would do for them. Friends never doubt. The power of your testimony for in the same way that Jesus told this man go tell them what I've done for you that I'm a merciful God that is a message that we are to be proclaiming with our words and with our actions we serve a merciful God this is where I was this is where I am and we allow the truth of that message to settle in their minds through the power of the Holy Spirit no matter what the insecurity of your life no matter what the difficulty of your existence. As God guides, he will give you, and as he takes you through tests, what does he develop? A test ends up being a testimony of what God can do in your life. Tell your story. Tell it often and tell it well. How once you were blind and now you see, how once you were lost and now you're found, how once you had no hope, no purpose, no plan and no place to call home, and Jesus called you home. Let Jesus use your story to claim the attention of those who need him. Friends, the more we know God, the more we are grounded in who he is, the more we tell our story, even when life is not easy, God will use us. For eight decades of the 20th century, life was extremely difficult for Christians in Russia. School teachers would hold up a Bible and ask kindergarten children if. Any, if any of them had a book like this in their homes, and if they said yes, the government officials would go and visit that home, and pastors and lay people were imprisoned, taken, and never heard from again. A man named Dmitri lived out his faith in this time of Russian history. And he and his family lived in a small village four hours from Moscow and three hours from the nearest, nearest church. And so he began to tell his children Bible stories. Other people heard about it. And soon there were 15 people in their home. When the group grew to 25, the officials began to notice and told him to stop. He refused. The group grew to 50 people and Dmitri was dismissed from his factory job. His wife was fired from her teaching position and his sons were expelled from school. Still, he continued. When the group grew to 75, there was not even enough room in his home. People squeezed in to every available space. And one night, a group of soldiers burst into the meeting they were having. A soldier grabbed Dmitry, slapped him back and forth across the face and warned him to stop or something worse would happen. As this soldier left... A small grandmother stepped in his past and waved a finger in this soldier's face and said, you have laid hands on a man of God, you will not survive. Within two days, the man had died of a heart attack. Well, the fear of God spread and 150 showed up for the next house meeting. Dimitri was arrested and sentenced to 17 years in prison His jail cell was so small that he needed needed only one step to reach each wall. He was the only believer among 1,500 prisoners. The The officials tortured him and the other prisoners mocked him, but he never broke. Every morning he stood by his bed, he faced east, he raised his hands to God and he sang a song of praise. The other prisoners would jeer, still he sang. Whenever he found a scrap of paper, he scribbled a verse or story from memory. He took the papers and affixed it to a damp pillar as a sacrifice to Jesus. And when the officials saw the papers, they removed the papers and they beat him. Still, he worshiped with the same song every morning. This went on for 17 years, only on one account... One situation did he briefly recant his faith. Guards convinced him that his wife had been murdered and that his children were wards of the state. It was more than he could bear, and he agreed to renounce his faith in Jesus, and the officials were sure that were, had, they had him just where they wanted him. But people were praying for him. A thousand kilometers away, his family sensed a special burden to pray for him. They knelt in a circle and interceded passionately for his protection miraculously the Lord allowed Dimitri to hear the actual voices as his family prayed and he knew that they were safe the next morning when the guards came to get his signature that he had denounced his face faith they found a renewed man he was his face was calm and his eyes were resolute I'm not signing anything he told them and in the night God let me hear the voices of my wife and children he said and my brother praying for me you lied to me. I know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that they are all still in Christ. I am not signing anything. Well, the officials beat him and threatened to execute him, but Dimitri's resolve only increased. He worshiped in the morning, he posted verses on the pillars. Finally, the authorities had all they could take, and they went to his cell one morning, drug him from his cell through the corridors leading to the center of the prison, the place of execution. And as the prisoners saw what was happening to this man, these 1,500 prisoners who jeered him raised their hands and began to sing the song of praise that they heard Dimitri singing each morning. The jailers released their hold on him and stepped back and said, who are you? They asked, and Dimitri responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Demetrius was taken back to his cell, and sometime later, he was released and returned to his family. What does this mean? In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, we read these words. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and do great exploits. Demetrius knew his God. And because he knew his God, he did great things for God. May we, may I and may you, know our God so well that we too will take action and do great things. Proclaiming, as Dimitri did and as the demon-possessed man did, how much the Lord has done for us. And that he is a merciful God. And the beauty about knowing God is we can start from wherever we are. Wherever you are today, we, we say, God, may I know you better. May you give me a desire to know you. That by knowing you, I might serve you. With the kind of passion and words and actions that lead others to know here is a man, here is a woman, here is a child. Who knew their God. And may we do great things for him. Would you stand with me? This